Good morning. My name is Tammy Luce. This morning, our scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45 from the New American Standard Bible. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. The word of the Lord. Good morning once again. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and I want to invite us to continue in our series this morning. We're looking at miracles in the gospel of Mark, and today uh, I want to say that empathy is what is at the core of all that we call relationships or connection or community and even what we claim to do here, which is ministry. Ministry, by definition, means the helping of and giving to others, meeting them at their point of need. Uh, Empathy in the um, dictionary is defined as the ability to identify with or understand another situation or feelings. And then I was actually surprised to find that even the dictionary uh, has this little notation that empathy is a distinctly human capability. That humans alone have the ability to put ourselves in other people's shoes, and we can identify with them and understand how another person is feeling. And that's a uniquely human trait. Uh, And it's interesting when you sort of go down the uh, trail a little bit, you find cases of feral children, wild children maybe, who were abandoned or something, and they're raised by dogs or uh, grow up in the wild. Uh, In many of these cases, the one thing that all these uh, scientists find, discover, is that they don't behave like human beings, and the reason is what they're lacking is empathy. At the heart of what we call humanness, humanity, is empathy. And when you take that away, uh, they make the point that the absence of empathy creates a person that's dangerous. You can never be safe with somebody who lacks empathy because you never know what they might do or say to harm you. Because what protects us from each other, from harming each other, is empathy. I know that's going to hurt me, so I won't do that to you. And so we see this 
Uh, for example, in the Golden Rule, the rule to rule all rules, right, is based on human empathy. Do unto others as what? What's the basis for knowing what to do or not do? As you would want them to do unto you. What about Jesus' great command? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, meaning that it actually defines how to do the first. And that second command is, love your neighbor as what? Yourself. Again, the basis of how you love others is empathy. And so the general rule that I want us to understand about empathy is, from the self, you relate to others. You can't just relate to others and not deal with this whole situation called the self. It is really important that you have a grasp of and are connected to your self. And from that self, you love your neighbor. From that self, you do unto others. From that self, you love and serve and give. And if you don't have a self, what happens? What if that self is distorted? Then what happens? Then you become feral. You're sort of a wild person. And people don't feel safe with you because they never know what they're going to get. Where are your guidelines if you don't have empathy? Now, if relating to others means launching from the self, right? How do we at the same time then have the self not get in the way? And that's really the question I want us to think about today. If by definition of what empathy is, right? And even the book of John, it says you can't say you uh, hate your brother and at the same time you love God because you only have one self. And from this self, you love your brother. And from the very same self, you love God because you only have one self. So you have to do it. There's no other way to relate to others. But how do we do that? without the self getting in the way. And uh, what I want us to do today is to see how Jesus related to a leper, no less, and how that interaction went down and what that interaction teaches us about how to relate to others from the self and yet not have the self get in the way of that relationship. I think it's, it's an interesting question. If relationship by definition is a connection of the self to the other, how does the self not get in the way? In other words, how do you touch a leper? That's our one point we have today. How do you touch a leper? And then we'll have uh, a couple of application points and a conclusion. So, how do you touch a leper? We'll look at verse 40 to 42. Let me read it for us again. And a leper came to Jesus beseeching him, and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, okay, that might be the word empathy, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Notice that's the self, his hand. It's stretching forth from the self, but it's reaching out to the other and touches the leper stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, 
from the self, you be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. There's so much in this little exchange. And I've actually used this passage to make other points for many years, but I've never actually preached on this passage before. So I'm pretty excited to do it. Really, really good passage. Now, uh, we know from uh, history that the leper was not supposed to come close to Jesus. In fact, lepers had what's called proximity rules. Uh, these were legal regulations that governed how people related to each other. And a leper was deemed to be what they called unclean. They were physically unclean. They were assigned to their own kind to live outside of sort of civilized life off on their own. And they were also deemed to be spiritually defiled because they were seen as cursed by God. Because why else would you have leprosy was the thinking at the time. If you were physically ill, you were cursed of God. So physically, socially, spiritually marked and marginalized. And so if they ever should come close to civilized life, they would have to shout out at the top of their lungs, unclean, unclean, as they walked the streets. There was no other way for them to move except to shout out unclean so that other people had ample time to maintain distance from them, right? But we see here that the leper comes so close to Jesus. So that's already a violation of some sort. And then Jesus, as a rabbi, is not, is not, is not supposed to touch a leper or this leper or any leper ever. There are just all sorts of flags going off in everybody's mind. Anxiety level of the whole crowd is going up. Everybody's sort of ready to panic, watching and waiting to see what's going to go down. How's this show going to end? What's the ending? this episode here. So the first thing is I want us to recognize how exceptional it is for the leper to come to Jesus in the first place. It's an amazing thing that this is happening. And some of the questions that arose in my mind is, uh, what had the leper heard about Jesus already? Because clearly this isn't the first time. News about Jesus was spreading like wildfire, and he had heard some things. He probably hadn't seen anything, but he heard stuff. And then, besides what he physically heard with, you know, through his eardrums, what was the Holy Spirit whispering to the leper's heart? There was, there was some nudging and pushing, and sometimes you just have an instinct or a feeling, some sense that you are being guided by a higher force, maybe. Right? The Spirit was at work. What was happening in his heart? I wonder about that. And ultimately, when the point of decision came and the opportunity presented itself, why did the leper make the decision to trust Jesus? Because he doesn't know how Jesus would have reacted. This is a first what caused him to make that leap? I heard this great phrase that I just want to use all week long and I want to use for the rest of my life because I've been trying to describe this dynamic in so many words, but it was Ernest Hemingway I discovered this week who said gradually and then suddenly. 
Isn't that an amazing phrase? So gradually things were happening, and then suddenly the leper leapt and made the decision to approach Christ and risk it all. Amazing uh, story here. How did the leper know that he would be safe? That's a huge word for me. If you've been around our church, you know I care about this word. I'm not saying that I'm a safe person all the time. I want to be. Gradually and suddenly and all the time. I want to be a safe person. And I really, really feel unsafe easily. I'm just like such a wimp when it comes to this. Just a look or a word or some rumor of a word or a rumor of a look. I'm, I'm just, just, I find my corner and I go cower. I'm so scared of you. I really am. You all look so nice right now, but safe. How did the leper know he would be safe? Every other religious person, the whole system, you know, God, God wanted so much to touch this leper. That was God's heart to be his God, the leper's God. And yet the whole religious system intended to bring people to God had excluded him. It wasn't for him. How did he know this rabbi was safe? And then the second thing I want us to uh, see is just the demonstration of tremendous courage and love on Jesus' part. You know, we talked about this last week, that Jesus deliberately picked the Sabbath. Chapter 1, right out the gates. He was going to violate the Sabbath regulations as they understood it at that time. And he did that very intentionally. That wasn't some, oh, I really just forgot what day of the week it was. It wasn't that. The whole society revolved around the most important day of the week, which was the Sabbath. And Jesus said, yep, that's the hill I'm going to die on. And literally, he did. Right? And again, Jesus is picking a fight here. Why the leper? It's a violation of religious laws and regulations. It challenges the authorities that have set up these regulations. He's fighting the man here. And he does this at the risk of his life. And he jeopardizes his credibility i.e. his mission. Like, why is the risk of his mission worth it? And it turns out, though, what we learn is that Jesus, his own holiness was never on the line. We see this because as soon as Jesus made contact, he stretches out his hand and touches the leper. And this was the great fear. This is the nightmare scenario for religious leaders of Jesus' time is that you might come into contact with a leper and you yourself become defiled. But then what happens? Jesus touches the leper and instead of Jesus getting defiled, the leper becomes cleansed everybody thought the leprosy was infectious 
And Jesus says, no, my holiness is infectious. And the leper is cleansed. Did Jesus break any rules? Well, he sort of did, but then the rules don't apply anymore because the very creature that was supposed to defile you and make you unclean before God now stands cleansed. Now what? Now how do we think about this? Complete paradigm shift, right? Don't break the mold, Jesus. And Jesus said, what mold? It's an amazing story. It's an amazing little story. Let's get underneath now what's happening uh, to why it's happening the way it's happening. Why did this go down the way it did? And what we learn is that Jesus was both safe. The leper had an inkling about this, an instinct, and came to Jesus, risked it all, and discovered not only was he safe, but he was also holy. Safe and holy. I would love to talk for three hours about how the church is neither safe, neither holy in our day and age. I would love to just... Repeat that over and over again. How society and the very ones we claim need God the most don't feel safe in churches, don't feel safe with Christians, don't feel safe having conversations with religious people. And we're not helpful. We're so afraid of being infected by the world and becoming unclean. We don't know how to be, so we form this, these insular communities to isolate ourselves from the world because we are afraid of the fragility of our holiness. And I have to say that in air quotes because I think true holiness is actually what's infectious. But our brand of holiness, very fragile. The leper could be because Jesus was both safe and holy. He could be received. He could be loved. And he could be helped. Imagine there was you or a collection of you called a church where the word on the street, the reputation that would cause people to risk it all and break religious regulation and come to us or to you is because they know, they keep hearing they're going to be received, they're going to be loved, and they're going to be helped. Now, that's the church I wanted to serve. That's the church I wanted to perpetuate the mission of. That's why I went into the ministry. Come to find out. Come to find out. It's harder than I thought. Imagine this was the word on the street about Christians. You wouldn't be so embarrassed about Christian, being a Christian. You wouldn't, that wouldn't be the last piece of information you reluctantly divulge. Jesus was safe because his holiness wasn't threatened by the leper's uncleanliness. We see that he was moved with compassion. He can enter into the leper's pain, into the leper's world. He can do that, moved with compassion. And he can stretch out his hand. From within himself, Jesus extended into the leper's world. He can go anywhere because he himself was never threatened. Jesus never felt afraid. Jesus once said, nobody can take my life from me. Nobody can. 
I know you have swords. I know you have power, but actually nobody can take it away from me. I love when Tim Keller says, you know, these people came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then they're looking for him because they don't know what he looks like, and they're waiting for Judas, the traitor, to come and give him a kiss to identify Jesus as him. And they say, you know, where is Jesus? We're looking for this man, Jesus. And Jesus steps forward, and he says, I am. Just the word, I am which we know is code word for Yahweh, I'm God. So Jesus steps up and says, I am. And you know what happens to those who came to arrest him? They fall backwards. They fall down. It's, Tim Keller says, it's like Jesus flexed. <laughs> Jesus had one prayer and legions of angels would come and y'all would not even exist anymore. He was not weak. He was never under threat. I lay it down of my own accord, he said. If you want my life, you can only have it if I give it. That's strength, not insecurity. So we have this idea of empathy. And I want us to dig into this a little bit and uh, really understand how to be as Jesus did, to be able to be moved with empathy or compassion and be able from the self reach out and touch and receive and love and heal. Because if we don't do that, why? Why bother? What's this whole show about? Why gather? Why be a so-called church when our reputation is, yeah, only those kind go over there. If you actually need help, you don't go to church. So let's think about this. Uh, There's a a book called, I thought it was just me, but it isn't by uh, a nursing scholar named Teresa Wiseman. And she's talking about this idea of empathy. And she says empathy has four attributes. And I want to just give you the first three of them. The last one, the fourth one, is about communicating empathy, not as relevant for us today. So here's the first three uh, attributes of empathy. Let me just put in a plug in for the sermon resource folder. Uh, all the uh, hyperlinks and titles of books and all the actual quotes and fuller quotes and entire uh, essays are all in there. So go ahead and uh, have at it. So the first attribute of empathy, she says, is to be able to see the world as others see it. This requires putting your own stuff aside to see the situation through your loved one's eyes. So it's get yourself out of the way and see through another's eyes. Second attribute of empathy, to be non-judgmental. Judgment, listen to this, of another person's situation discounts the experience. Now, that's happening on a subconscious level. Discounts, excuse me, discounts the experience and is an attempt to protect ourselves from the pain of the situation. Now, we don't know we're doing this, and we don't know that that's why we're being judgmental. But when we judge, it's a self-defense mechanism. We think when we judge, it's about them. But in reality, it's about the log in your own eye. It's your own defense mechanism. It's the sword you are wielding because you are afraid of the pain that it's invoking in you. In other words, you're afraid of empathy. You're afraid to feel. 
And then the third attribute is to understand another person's feelings. We have to be in touch with our own feelings in order to understand someone else's. Again, this requires putting your own stuff aside to focus on your loved one. And here it gets a little bit more complex because she's saying, you know, in order to understand the other's feelings, you have to have your own feelings. But once you have it, now you have to be able to put it away so that now you can focus on the other's feelings. And that's really where the rubber meets the road. That's sort of the master level act of empathy. Can you do that? And if you are and when you are able to do that, there is empathy happening. So the core of empathy is an ability to extend from the self, but somehow get the self out of the way so that you can see through the other person's eyes and experience their experience. You enter into, in other words, the other person's pain without your own pain, which has been invoked, getting in the way. So whenever somebody begins to share pain with you, you begin to feel your own pain. Now, the pain doesn't have to be in kind. It can also be just your own disappointment. Maybe you got bad news. Right? Like, let's say your spouse lost their job. And they have pain about losing that job. There's so many things crumbling in that other person's inner world and outer world when they share with you that they lost their job. But then your own insecurities and disappointments start coming up in you. Oh, no. How are we going to pay the mortgage? What are we going to do? How long is it going to take for you to get another job? Do I have to get a job now? What do we do? But somehow you feel that, but you can't let that pain get in the way. And you enter into your spouse's world. But you use your own incited feelings as a way to experience their feelings and not just dwell and orbit around your own. And when you are able to actually do that, then what we see from Scripture in a um, highlighted way is that connection and healing results. So I'll give you an example, another one. If a friend tells you they have cancer, this is like level one response. This is the worst level of response you could do. Oh, no. How can you do this to me? How am I going to live without you? That's the worst ever, okay? Because you have no recognition that they're the ones who have cancer. You make the story about you. That's what drama queens do. How am I going to live? What am I going to do? You stopped hearing like five minutes ago anything that was coming out of your friend's mouth, right? You got the news, reaction inside of you, and you ran with it. Level two is kind of like when you are having questions. So level two is, what kind of cancer is it? You know, oh, how long do you have to live? What, you know, and then you start sort of just gathering information. It's still about you. But you're connecting to them about their issues a little bit. And then my question now is, what's level three? And that's empathy. When you now are able to use your feelings to Keep it about them. 
to enter into their world and see through their eyes. <clears throat> when faced with another's pain or problem, the greatest asset you have to offer is you. Your empathy, your presence, your attention. And simultaneously, the greatest liability you have is to manage you. On the one hand, asset. On the other hand, liability. And that's sort of the bummer I feel about me because somehow wherever I go, there I am getting in the way. Whatever I do, it is me doing it getting in the way. And I have found over my 42 years of uh, walking this earth that the problem of me, my problem, my biggest problem is me. Me. Because every problem I try to solve, I bring me. Every experience I have, there I am. What do you do when that's the case? Does it have to be that way? Do I have to be my biggest problem? What are, what's on the screen? Macaroni, what are these called? Elbows. elbows. They're called elbows. And this is my best metaphor. You've heard this, me ask this question before. And the question is, how's your elbow? How's your elbow this morning? Fine? Now, if you weren't aware of your elbow prior to me asking about your elbow, it means that your elbow is doing great. It's doing its job. It was created for a purpose. And it's not crying out for help. Now, ask me how my elbow is doing. My right elbow is a little bit sore. And I found myself sort of touching it like this, just right underneath here, right where the funny bone is. And so just a little bit sore, and I'm not sure why. There's a kind of self-consciousness of the elbow that's happening. I am aware of the elbow. My left elbow, I don't even know that it exists. It's completely out of the way because it's not crying out for help. It's doing its job. It's living the purpose for which God created it. Good elbow, good job. My right elbow, asking for help a little bit. There's self-consciousness there. And here's the thing I want you to see. When there is self-focus or self-consciousness, it is a cry for help. There's a woundedness there. Your awareness of your own pain is your first indication that you are hurting right now. When you are not self-conscious, that's an indication that you are probably fine. But if you have sort of a need for attention and you feel a self-consciousness, that means you have an inability to give and it's not able to quite serve its purpose. So I want to suggest to you that the better you are doing, the less self-conscious you are. And so if you feel like this uh, need to get attention, it means it's a sign that you need help. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he says this, True humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. It's not saying, I suck, I'm bad, you're better. That's not it. That's not humility. That's self-consciousness. True humility is going, wait, what? Me? Oh, uh, yeah, I guess I'm doing fine. 
That's humility, self-forgetfulness. It's the, it's the left elbow, right? A humble elbow is one that is not thinking less of itself. Left elbow doesn't have a low self-esteem thinking it sucks, but one that is thinking of itself less. Jesus, when called upon, he's able to say, oh, yeah, I'm willing. You be cleansed. He's doing his job. Power is flowing through him because he himself is fine. I want to give you uh, some application points here. Uh, Just two, actually. The first is I want to talk a little bit about how you know if you are an unsafe person. And here it is. You are an unsafe person when you feel threatened in some way, your own righteousness or self-righteousness, for example, uh, you can't handle the proximity of your own or the other person's pain, then you are an unsafe person. And what this means is that you have some unacknowledged needs that are getting in the way of serving the other. We all have needs. And once we acknowledge it, you're a safer person than before you acknowledge them, before you validate it as pain in your life, in your heart, whatever's going on. Unacknowledged need makes you an unsafe person because when your need is unacknowledged, you are unaware bringing that need wherever you go. Your fears and your, your anxieties, your issues, you come and you contaminate whatever crime scene you claim to be working on. Here somebody is hurting and they're bringing their pain before you and what do you do? You start feeling your pain, but you're caught off guard by it. You're, you're caught flat-footed because, oh, I I didn't know. I hadn't acknowledged it. And you start talking about your pain and your story. Well, back when I was, and you just tell this whole story about you or your disappointment or your pain or your anger or your story. Because it was not acknowledged sufficiently, it's showing up uninvited, contaminating the crime scene. And when you find that you are doing that, if you have the wherewithal to do that, I think the best option at that moment might be to recuse yourself from that crime scene and say, you know, you're my friend. I really want to be there for you, but I just like feel my story coming up and taking over. So uh, I'm going to sort of hand you off to some safer people for the time being. Let me go think about my own stuff for a while. That might be the best case scenario at that point. Okay, so if you find yourself unsafe, recuse yourself. Now, that's not the end of the story. Second application point is, how can you become a safer person? What we see here is you can't perform being a safe person. You just have to be one. You have to already be what you need to be by the time you show up or it's too late. That's the whole thing. Jesus' stories, if you read the book of Mark and John and Luke and Matthew, all these stories are just what we would call today interruptions. He was on his way somewhere else, and he gets interrupted along the way. So what happens is Jesus just gets cut, 
And what does he bleed? He bleeds safe and holy. He bleeds healing power. He bleeds God's words. It's not like Jesus was like, okay, it's coming, it's coming, I'm ready, give it to me, boom. No, that, that just never happens. Life just doesn't do that to us, does it? It catches you off guard and cuts you and says, let's see what you're bleeding. And then I bleed like anxiety and fear and controlling and that's me. I have to already be ready. That's why experience is so valuable. That's why grandparents are better parents than parents. Right? If you can parent your first like your fifth, you're amazing. Because you're bleeding good stuff. Jesus gets caught, he gets cut, and he starts bleeding healing and empathy and love and truth and fire and living water. Miracles, power. This guy's amazing. And the question is, when you get cut, what do you bleed? If you were not ready before, that means you're not ready now. So I want to... just angle this point a little bit. I found this really helpful resource through my friend uh, John Lindbergh. We had noodles this week, and he always brings books for, uh, to share with me. And this was a book I had already read, but I had completely missed this in the book. Uh, but it's, uh, re- the book referred to an essay written by Dorothy Sayers called Why Work? Uh, and uh, she was a prolific essay writer, and her favorite topic Uh, was the Christian's attitude towards work. This was her passion. Uh, She was a a contemporary of uh, C.S. Lewis's mentor, G.K. Chesterton. She was a pastor's kid. Her dad was an Anglican priest. And um, she wrote, actually, for a living, she wrote detective novels, but this was her true passion. And she says this, and I want to read it to you because it's so deep. I think it's going to feed you for weeks to come. She says this, The moment you think of serving other people, you begin to have a notion that other people owe you something for your pains. You begin to think that you have a claim on the community. You will begin to bargain for reward, to angle for applause, and to harbor a grievance if you are not appreciated. But if your mind is set upon serving the work rather than the people, then you will know you have nothing to look for. The only reward the work can give you is the satisfaction of beholding its perfection. That's so good. The work takes all and gives nothing but itself. And to serve the work is a labor of pure love. If you set out to serve the community, you will probably end by merely fulfilling a public demand. And you may not even do that. A public demand is a changeable thing. The danger of serving the community is that one is part of the community and that in serving one, serving it, one may only be serving a kind of communal egotism. She's saying there's a conflict of interest because you're part of the community you're serving. The only true way of serving the community is to be truly in sympathy with the community, to be oneself part of the community, and then quickly, I might add, then to serve the work without giving the community another thought. Then the work will endure because it will be true to itself. It is the work that serves the community. Parentheses, not you. The business of the worker is to serve the work. She's saying fall in love with the work itself. 
figure out, be obsessed with how to do it right, get it right. And once you're focused on the work, then the work, because you've gotten it right, because you're achieving mastery in the work, it turns around and serves the community. It serves as a buffer between you and the people you are ultimately trying to serve, but you don't get anything out of it. Your satisfaction is in beholding the perfection of the work itself. Now, this is really true for all you non-pastors out there, which is all of you. If you work, this is how you got to do work. Like, don't try to love your kids because you love them so much. Figure out how to be a really good parent. And then behold the perfection of being a parent and allow that work to serve your kids. If you're an engineer, figure out how to be the best engineer ever and allow that to serve your clients and your company. That way, you don't have entitlement going on. And it's the same thing for what I'm saying here. You don't show up at a moment and try to love the person. No, you work on you, you, so that when you get cut, inevitably you will, then what you bleed is good stuff. And that, that itself, the you you have been working on, the mature you, the whole you, where your needs have been acknowledged, where your own sins are confessed and before the Lord, where your weaknesses and strengths are before you, as you work on your own salvation with fear and trembling, allow that salvation then to be a blessing to those you are called to love. But when the moment comes and you say, okay, I'm going to love this person. I'm going to do what is right. I'm going to seek wisdom. Too late, brother. Too late. Recuse yourself. That's why we're a body. If one arm can't handle it, the other one can. Yes, we are all connected. When one hurts, we all hurt. But not every part is qualified to be helpful at any given moment. Work on you. What is your work? What is God calling you to do? Philippians 2.12. Your salvation. doesn't say work on everybody else's salvation. Work on your salvation with fear and trembling. And then bring that humble, safe, holy, non-self-conscious self to bear on whoever or whatever situation presents itself before you. Boy, I wish I got some amens right now. Y'all are tough. Tough, tough, tough. Now, you say, isn't that self-centeredness if I'm working on me? I'm going to ask you, what's the alternative? If you're not working on you, who's working on you? And then what's the self you bring to bear on your loved ones? Do you want to deal with that mess? No, this is the way God has designed for us to work. You work on the elbow when it cries for help, and when the elbow is called on to do its job, it will do its job non-self-consciously, humbly. If you believe you are made in God's image and you have His DNA in you, self-care is never selfish because self-care is ultimately self-forgetful and self-giving, not self-serving. Let me strike one more way, and then we have to close because Jared's going to kill me. It's 1014. Uh, verse 43 to 45 here. I won't read this. It talks about Jesus giving all these instructions to the leper. And the question is, why is Jesus instructing him after he's already been healed? 
because there's more business to be done. Jesus was never just focused on healing one leper. He was on a mission, we learned last week, to heal and to cast out demons and to preach. For this is why I came. That's what Jesus himself said of himself. So Jesus isn't focused on the minutia of the situation, but he's generally focused on being the savior of the world and accomplishing the mission of dying on the cross for which he was sent. And on the way to the cross, he was interrupted constantly, so he kept bleeding out good stuff, but ultimately he knew where he was called to bleed and die and rise again from the dead, and that was on the cross. So you, you, stop being nosy busybodies. What's your job? Why has God called you into being? Go do that. And while you're doing that, if you get interrupted on, you get called upon to love other people, do that. Bring that prepared self to bear on the situation. But move on. Stop focusing on other people. Let them work on their own salvation with their own fear and trembling. You will stand before the Lord and you will answer to Him for you. Just stop it. Stop being so interested in other people's belly buttons. Go gaze at your own. Your larger mission that God has called you on is for you to become a loving person, for you to be a safe person, for you to be just like Jesus, so that when the Spirit moves you, there you are. And forget about you. Go work on that. Now, let's conclude here. When you encounter an unsaved person, if you look deep within that person, what you will see, if you are able, is that there are fears and anxieties persisting in that person's life. The gospel says this, that there's no one, and this this is the Christian moment, If you believe this, you are a Christian. If you don't, there's a call and invitation here. The gospel says there's no one other than Christ who can get deep down into the deep recesses of our being where our fears and anxieties actually persist. And it is he and he alone. And his name is the only name. And there's no other name by which which we can be healed and saved at that deep level. And we remain unsafe until Jesus, the only safe person, heals us and makes us safe for others and for ourselves. And so Jesus says this, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. May God heal you and make you safe today. Amen.